The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, get your XAML on and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 537 with guests Venkatesh Ramakrishnan and Roman Rubin, recorded live Tuesday, March 23rd, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who says, if you believe in telekinesis, raise my hand, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here in New London. Richard Campbell down there, up there, up there, over there, up and over in uh, Vancouver. Hey, man. How are you, bub? I'm good. I'm good. I, I, uh, you know, we're recording this on, on the 23rd. And I just cut off my facial hair. Oh my goodness! Because the first day of spring was just a couple of days ago. Right, right. So I'm looking. I'm I'm feeling young and looking. I don't know what I'm looking. I'm looking more like my driver's license photo. That's good for people. That's who a good are checking thing. My I'm ID. freshly back from probably the silliest job I've ever had. Oh really? I was uh, asked to MC the unkeynote at Tech Ready 10, which is the Microsoft internal conference. What's an unkeynote? It's an well, they don't want to do sort of traditional keynotes. So this was actually a programming duel between the red team and the blue team, and the red team was led by none other than Rocky Latka, and the blue team was led by Phil Hack. <laughs> and they were comparing and contrasting uh, MVC2 and Silverlight 3. Wow. And what, which doesn't necessarily make it silly all by itself. The silly part was that the losing team got cream pies in the face. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, at the end of this whole, uh, duel, uh, with all these different challenges around data and testing and so forth, showing off a, a huge raft of technologies, really talented bunch of folks, we had to end with, uh, with four cream pies. That's awesome. We, we should have more cream pies in, in .NET. I'm surprised how long I can talk about cream pies, actually. Hey, I learned a few new uh, computer industry acronyms the, All right. other, the other day. You know, CD-ROM stands for Consumer Device Rendered Obsolete in Months. Nice. PCMCIA stands for People Can't Memorize Computer Industry Acronyms. Yes. How about ISDN, ISDN? It still does nothing. <laughs> how about SCSI? System Can't See It. 
<laughs> Windows will install needless data on whole system. Nice. How about uh, OS 2? Obsolete soon, too. Uh-huh. All right, well, I Apple, Apple, arrogance time. produces profit-losing entity. Nice. <laughs> COBOL, completely obsolete business-oriented language. <laughs> Lisp, lots of insipid and stupid parentheses. <laughs> nice. All right, that's all I got. Can we better know a framework? Let's get into better know framework. All right. All right, what you got? Oh, come on. That was a little funny. It was very funny, Just actually. a little funny. <laughs> so, uh, today I'm continuing the trend of going back into obsolete types. Yes. Some types are obsolete, but they have just moved namespace-wise. Right, right. They've reorganized. Yeah, so is the case with a lot of the system runtime interop services uh, classes and types like bind ops, uh, ucom, i bind ctx, ucom, i connection point, connect data. There's just a type kind, type flags, param flag. There's a whole bunch of them. They've basically moved into system.runtime.interopservices.com types. So they're the same types, but now they've just moved into a sub namespace called com types. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, that's it. So Good you just might be, yeah, you might be a little confused if you're doing some interop work and all of a sudden, hey, where did they go? Yeah, I need check, that. Check the com types. Yeah, I wonder how many people are still doing interop work. I think we should really do a show around that. Yeah, it's been a while. I think they're, I think they're quite a lot. I think interop is alive and well. Yeah, it doesn't go away, does it? No, it doesn't. Yep. That's what I got. Who's that's talking to got. us, Richard? I have an email that says, Good day from Australia. Guys, love the show. It makes my one-hour drive to work in the morning seem half-bearable. I was left wondering after your show 527, Joel Semenyuk on using TFS with small teams, I feel Microsoft may have really missed the point here with small teams that simply want version control. We have a team of 11 that are starting to come up to speed with Visual Studio 2010, and I took it upon myself to take this as an opportunity to consolidate a number of source control versions our guys were using. Don't get me wrong, I'm a Microsoft man all the way, and I was praying that 2010 TFS was the answer to my prayers, but I think they've really missed out on the simplicity of setting up Subversion and Tortoise as a means of source control. With a total time of about one hour for an installation and two hours of user training, we were up and running very quickly, and with the integration plugins into Studio and Jira, it really makes it hard for me to put a business case together to buy TFS. Although towards the end of the show, Joel did grab my attention with regards to the reporting capabilities that really saved me time and money on my larger projects. Keep up the good work. P.S. I'll make you a deal. Send me a mug and I'll send you a bottle of Australian wine. Nice. And that's from Brendan Speet in Adelaide, Australia. Well, we think we've been bribed for starters. But I'm okay with that. I yeah. don't know that you're actually allowed to mail wine to foreign countries. But I don't think so. uh, if you send me a bottle of something, I won't complain. And uh, I think he made his own point here, which was the real reason to use TFS is all that reporting stuff. That ultimately, this is beyond source control. I don't think we're ever going to get simpler than the SVN setup. Like that's that is stunningly simple. It's as simple as can be in exchange for not a lot of sophistication in the analysis side of things. And I think that's where the real win of TFS comes in. Yeah. 
And that's all I got to say about that. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. And if you've got any suggestions for shows, complaints, ideas, want to tell us how we missed a classic point in a particular show, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. And Richard, our guests today are Venkatesh Ramakrishnan and Roman Rubin. Venkatesh, or Venki as he's like to be called, he manages the Development and Program Management Office of WK slash CLS. In prior life, he served as Principal Architect of CLS. While Venki is always selective choosing technologies, he has a successful track record of taking bleeding-edge technologies in large scale into production. Roman Rubin is currently a project lead at CT Corporation. He has over a decade of web development experience for the pharmaceutical, financial, and education industries. His career has been focusing on building business applications with Microsoft Technologies. Welcome, guys. Good morning, Colin Richard. Good morning. Glad to be on your show. Glad to have you here. The The topic of the day is large-scale applications with Silverlight. And you guys spoke about this, or uh, at least you did, Roman. You spoke about this at Mix and did a did a uh, a nice session on this. Uh, yeah, we got a chance to speak at it at Mix. Uh, I can give you guys uh, the uh, link. Uh, it's at uh, shrinkster.com slash 1D78. Awesome. And there's a video there? Yeah, there's a video of Silverlight. Uh, I, can, I think you can also download it uh, with WD uh, in a Windows Media format and uh, High Def format also. Nice. Yeah, you know, scale has always been the um, the issue for, well, especially for Microsoft developers, um, you know, going way back. People assume that scalability is just automatically built in and that we can start small and just scale infinitely. But time and time again, it comes back to haunt us, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, yes, fortunately, uh, it is uh, the responsibility of the architect, and it is a combined effort. It's like the platform should encourage scalability, and the architect should leverage that. And it is not going to happen either from one side. It's a combination of both. So how, how big is large scale here? What are we talking about? Maybe give you a little story of the app itself so that we, we sort of set the stage for what the challenges were. Okay. Uh, the product that we are talking about is not a brand new product. This is a product in production uh, for close to seven years. Uh, surprisingly, this product line, what we call as an HQ, is one of the multiple customer-facing solutions that we offer. It's a flagship product with major market share. Uh, in its first incarnation, it, ha- it attracted .NET runtime. That's the time .NET runtime 1.0 was in beta. So at that stage itself, uh, uh, we employ .NET runtime, and it looks like uh, the trend is continuing with this product. When Silverlight came in, uh, we are embracing Silverlight in a major way on the same product line. Just a coincidence. Uh, being in the production for the past seven years, being an industry-leading product, uh, over a period of time, it has gained lots of baggage. Uh, it's an in-production product close to 350 ASP.NET pages hmm. supported by Oracle backend. Uh, okay. So that's the size of the product, uh, close to 300 and 350 tables and tons of SQLs and stored procedures. Uh, the product has an SLA uh, with the customers for availability and uh, with heavy penalty classes. It supports some of the critical transactions, like SEC transactions. If you exercise some of your stocks, you have to report the SEC within 48 hours. So availability is something critical. So you have SLAs, you have availability issues, and broader audience classical enterprise application, data-rich, information-rich, 
this is not a classy sexy cool wear application this mm. is a classical line of business application in production so, which is a lot so what is your data access pipeline look like using adio.net directly using uh, entity framework what, what kind of technologies are you using in there uh, we are using adio.net directly we have our homegrown war mapping layer i won't call it war mapping layer by any stretch we have some fundamental abstractions what we call as an application building blocks uh, we could not and we didn't use entity framework because when the product was conceived the entity framework didn't exist but there were some external third party product war mapping tools are available that's a fundamental uh, challenge in employing most of the war mapping layer some of the sequels we are talking about here are extremely complex and we try to leave the sequel to the rdbms where it works the best uh mm. we have nothing in particular against uh, the technologies like war mapping layers in particular entity framework uh the sheer complexity of our application is such that uh, many times you would like to have the sequel optimized by dbas working at the database level and try to plug it into this system uh we tried a lot we tried a lot to embrace an higher productivity layers like an war mapping tool we tried a lot uh trying to employ the entity framework for example right uh, it's simply just that uh, uh we couldn't make it work for the kind of complexity that we have in the backend system well how about that richard somebody who's actually using ado.net you know like old school and building a really robust scalable application well it is it sounds to me the vanky correct me if i'm wrong but you've mostly described a high reliability solution more than anything. So, you know, you're, you're keeping as much work on the database as you possibly can, and you can't afford to be down. Uh, and so it makes sense to me that you're as close to the metal as you possibly get to, mm-hmm. to keep that working. How, when you say scale, how many users are we dealing with here? What's the transactional velocity like? Uh, we have close to 300,000 registered users. We have the market share of 80% of the Fortune 1000 companies. And uh, that's that's a very small segment. We have and a very large spectrum of the corporations and law firms using this product. And uh, I would say that uh, close to a million transactions are executed at the database level, and uh, close to two million page hits happens every day. That's the kind of volume we are talking about in terms of the front end usage as well as load on the back end. Now, here's a question for you: Did you start out scaling? Uh, did you build for scalability in the beginning? Did you have that number of users right out of the gate, or did it gradually increase? And if so, if it did gradually increase, where what were the bottlenecks? Like, what was the first bottleneck, and how did you solve it? So let me give it a two-part answer. Here we are talking about the product that was built seven years back. Now, we the core subject is uh, our adaptation to the Silverlight as a platform where we refresh the product. So when we release our revised product on the day one, we are going to have full load. So the, if going back in time, uh, when they build the product, even though the product has a slow growth, uh, we built in scalability from the day one. Uh, this is not the only product. There are much bigger solutions uh, in production. Uh, this is a tangential product line. So we have prior experience building for scale, lots of internal best practices. So fortunately, when we invested on this product line, uh, we built in the scalability factors in. Uh, when it comes to uh, horizontal scalability, we try to embrace, uh, we embrace three-tier architecture. 
our middle tier is horizontally scalable web tier is horizontally scalable all said and done our database is the uh, one phase where we have to grow up vertically we employ lots of uh, we try to predominantly work on stateless model on our middle and frontier uh, to enjoy the scalability but uh, our bottleneck is the database uh, partially because of our inability to embrace technologies like war mapping tool uh, we do a lot of selective caching uh, our principle on caching is caching is not a cure caching is a uh, is a workaround we don't mindlessly start caching we have a very high degree of concurrency issues based on the nature of the business so we have to be very selective on caching so we have learned a lot by serving a much larger scale application which are all compatible application in production so to answer your question on the day one uh, we know what we have to do to make the application scale uh, despite our business will uh fortunately or unfortunately it took almost 2 to 2 and a half years for the product to really gain mainstream but for past 4 years uh, the system has been performing exceptionally well and there has been close to 12% growth on the usage year over year so how much of this has to do with scalability of of a database versus scalability of silverlight does silverlight really affect the scale at all Silverlight uh, does not increase the scalability but it substantially reduced the load on our backend system so there is an internal journey to this product line when we started building this application the ajax was not a predominant concept in line of business application seven years back ajax was something cool to have even though microsoft had the xml posting uh, capabilities earlier when we started building it is predominantly about asp.net server driven architecture and the web browser predominantly served the role of rendering uh, not much of ajax embracement uh, but 3 years back the ajax was no longer a cool thing to have a line of business applications started expecting an asynchronous experience for a perceived i can have it highlight a perceived higher performance it doesn't really translate into suddenly all the problems are solved kind of model but a perceived higher performance was achieved Uh, when we started embracing ajax approach for most part of our sensitive pages uh, as a translation straight away the load on our front end started coming down marginally uh, to answer your question on silver light uh, when it comes to silver light uh, i we can clearly we are already the testing mode we can clearly see close to 30% reduction in our server load when it comes to the front end here and by trying to employ strategic caching on the client we can also bring down the load on the server close to another 30% load on the database by by additional 30% so silverlight is not going to make your application run faster magically but if it is carefully employed it can substantially reduce the load on your front end servers as well as your database servers and uh, we exercise lots of use cases on our current system current production system and the silverlight enabled platform for a comparable use case uh, by exercising in a large volume uh, across a huge collection of close to 50 testers and 35 developers we could establish that our server load has substantially come down for a comparable scenario so roman you uh, he thank you just said 35 developers did you have 35 developers right out of the gate or did you start small or 
Uh, yeah, well, we started off small. We did a lot of prototyping to validate a lot of our ideas and stuff, and also to get an uh, understanding of how Silverlight is working, delivery, how we're going to actually deliver and package up our Silverlight application. So we started off small. Uh, we, we took some ideas. Uh, we had some ideas on how we wanted to package uh, package a Silverlight application. We had ideas around maybe uh, even using things like Prism. And uh, as we saw, as we started, you know, started saying, you know what, let's say, let's say we actually have the whole Silverlight application uh, in place. Let's say we actually already have uh, 300 or 350 pages in a single app. And this is actually at the time of Silverlight uh, 2, uh, Silverlight 2, Silverlight 3 time, uh, time frame. So Silverlight 3 was an EAP at this point. So we said, okay, let's see what we get. What, what does it look like? What does the working set size look uh, like uh, for some of that application? Uh, what is uh, what is the download time going to feel like when you have 300 pages? And we these are you know we just dynamically created a couple of pages, uh, 300 these 300 pages to get a feel. So in a sense for how we're actually going to be able to package and deliver this application. So for these kinds of things, we had a smaller team. Uh, in addition to that, when we were started out with uh, ideas on how we were actually going to communicate. Uh, back and forth over the wire. Uh, we had a smaller team. So we we did things in the smaller teams uh, to brainstorm and prototype. But once we had some more solidified ideas around things, then we should scale them up to a bigger and a larger team. So even and, and as the process continued, even as the development process continued, we always took a step back and said, oh, you know what, maybe we didn't employ this correctly, or maybe we can improve uh, the way we've been using MEVM. And in those instances, we said we took a step back, uh, took a step back from the whole team. Uh, so even if we had a larger team already in place at that point, even at those at those uh, critical junctions, we took we said, okay, let's take two or three guys, let's go back, let's brainstorm, let's take a section of the application, uh, rethink uh, rethink what we've done, prototype it, put it in place, and if it works out and things are looking better, let's go ahead and then scale that to the team. So we never said. Uh, like holistically, you know, even in, uh, even from the very beginning when we first had a few people, uh, we we always prototyped. And even moving forward, once the application was getting more and more mature and had more and more functionality, even then, we never we never employed everything to the whole team because there was too much background noise, too many opinions. We basically went into like a uh, kind of like a thinking kind of a mode, uh, and um, and started uh, brainstorming ideas like that. Yeah, the engineering terminology for this was you, you mitigated risk. So it's like, I'm not sure if this works right. Make a small team and sort of come back with, this is the right way to do X. Absolutely. If you look at the size of the application, one small mistake can get replicated 300 times. Right. How are you going to fetch the reference data? If your approach is not right, then when we employ a large scale of developers, there are two risks. You establish a bad foundation that's going to, be, it's going to get magnified 300 times. Or if you do not even define it, you are going to have 300 variations of doing the same thing. So the risk mitigation is very important by trying to establish some basic foundation, do a lot of brainstorming, get the basic things right, and build it in an abstract way so that it will hold in various use cases. So that was one of the fundamental challenges. Thank you. I want to go back a little bit to uh, some of the ways that you alleviated the bottleneck at the database. Um, did you Did you use output caching at all? On the yes. ASP.NET pages? In the ASP.NET world, yes, we did. We did use output caching, but the whole story changes with the Silverlight approach. Right, because it's very chatty, is that why? Uh, Silverlight can get very chatty, but uh, when it comes to Silverlight, your UI layer, in, in the ASP.NET world, the UI and the information layers are kind of mingled with each other. Right. Now we have an output cache. What are you going to use the output cache for? The yeah. pre-rendered fragment, 
or people generally use output cache for caching some data also. So right. it's kind of an ill-defined uh, boundary between what is data and what is the presentable information. That's mm-hmm. the world of ASP.NET. Right. If you have a if you have a Silverlight blob there that's already loaded, you know that, and you're accessing the data directly through ADO.NET, your your output caching isn't really helping you there. That's what you're saying. That is right. You can employ. You primarily depend on web services or REST-based services. That is your window into the backend transactions. When it comes to the REST services and uh, web services, you can serve the WCF services in an what ASP.NET platform called a mixed mode. When you can start abusing the output caching, you have access to all those frameworks, second yeah. stage and output caching, but is that the best way to build the solution? There are better ways to solve the problem. So one of the design decisions we took, we, you know, we are not going to serve the web services in the mixed mode, and thou shall not use ASP.NET session state. It was very uh, demanding on our developers to stick to that rule and deliver the final solution. So in the ASP.NET world, the session state, as well as our homegrown distributed cache, plus output caching, all those things played an important role in making the application scale. When we embrace Silverlight, uh, the UI is rendered as a wrap. That's a layer of that UI has become predominantly content. When it comes to information, you depend on risk-based services or RIA services, or WCF services, or simple XML HTTP post. These are all the kind of technologies they depend on for interaction. And on that model, uh, there are certain flexibilities are gone, or it is still there, you don't want to use it, but there are new opportunities. Now we have a better client and a richer runtime. You can do better things by trying to make the application less chatty. Hmm. And ultimately, the, the big win here is that you can actually cache things at the client level inside of the Silverlight app. That is correct. And what sort of stuff are you caching? Uh, reference data, role-based security permissionings, mm. or a few things that come to my mind. Roman, can you think of sure. the key stuff that we'll be caching? Yeah, we actually also uh, we cache um, things like service-based, uh, like uh, our service endpoints, since those can be dynamic. Right. Uh, and since it's an asynchronous kind of a mechanism, we actually want to have those kinds of information up front. Uh, we also cache, uh, uh, we actually have a, 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 a MVM, a view model for our MVVM. It can actually be cached at multiple levels of the UI hierarchy. And if you guys watched the, uh, the session on Mix, we talked a little bit about how we deployed our MVVM. So even, right. our MV, our, even our view model is cached at different, well, it's not like caching in the sense, in the sense that we just discussed, but it's cached because you can retain it longer than the actual pages that you're actually on. So, in that sense, we cache a lot of some of, some of the information uh, in our view in our in our view model, which actually some of those things are actually what Banky just referred to, which is uh, the reference data, can actually be cached in the view in a in our view model. And so, the, in the end, this is all about saving trips back to the database. You're just holding everything as much as you can on the client and only sending back what you absolutely have to go send. Absolutely, absolutely, yep. And one of the biggest uh, gains was. What is well understood by most line of business application, the data grids. Data grids serving what is possibly uh, thousands and thousands of records, but a small fragment is presented to right. the client. The classical use case where you'd like to have client-side paging, client-side sorting, client-side filtering, while you're working on a massive data set. So you obtain minimal set of information to the client, silver-led client, and try to say the client don't go back to the server 
in ASP.NET world, you try to drop this information maybe in the session state. That's a big issue. When there is no easy way for cleaning up that information for the session state. You go to a use case, you do your search, you got 1,000 records, there are still 10,000 records in the database, you never fetched it. Now, user move on to a different use case. There is no clean context for cleaning up the session-based cache, what we generally call as a session bloat. It is a big pain in an ASP.NET world. There are patterns to solve it, but things are much cleaner with the silver light. Uh, mm-hmm. When we bring this data to, a claim, to the client on a given use case, as user moves away from that use case, there is a natural context for cleaning up unwanted data. It solves two fundamental issues. Apart from reducing the round trip that you make to the server, and apart from the fact that the end user gets a perceived better performance, even though nothing has changed in the backend, it also gives two different values. Unwanted data get cleansed at an earliest possible opportunity, so you optimize the use of system resources, whether it is server or the client. And more importantly, in a classical line of business application, data living away from your core OLTP system too long itself is a risk. Now we are seriously getting into multi-user concurrency issues. We used to write tons of logic to eliminate it. Letting the data go at an earliest possible opportunity substantially eliminates the risks around multi-user collision and multi-user concurrency problems. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, RAD controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or RAD chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. Yeah, and just to take a step back for over-the-wire transmission, since we've kept uh, our over-the-wire transmissions to our data uh, data, data, and uh Pretty much uh, just for data only. Uh, what we've actually been benefiting from additionally from uh, from our debugging standpoint is we can fire up a tool like Fiddler and actually start debugging and seeing are there any issues over the wire? Are there any issues with data? Right. Things like that. We don't get into that whole business of, hey, send me a XAML snippet over the wire or send me some sort of like encoding over the wire and then we'll figure out what's the problem in the plugin itself. We can actually just go ahead, deploy, deploy the application and actually monitor the traffic and take a look at what's going on uh, even without the development environment, we can actually get an idea and a perspective of what how things are working uh, in our environment in in the uh, in actual like a, a non production environment. Uh, so that's actually another benefit of keeping your your exchanges clean like that. Mm-hmm. First of all, you you you, you reduce the uh, payload, and second of all, because you're keeping it clean, you can actually do what it's supposed to do, and that's actually look at what's getting sent over the wire. Clearly understand what's getting sent over the wire. And actually use that as a as a way of understanding if there's some issues over the wire, and if there aren't any issues, at least you can rule those out like that. Are you using SQL Profiler to do that kind of profiling, or other tools? 
So from from the server standpoint, yeah, we can definitely open up SQL Profiler and get uh, get information about SQL performance. But um, I was actually referring to uh, once you already got the data over the wire, if you're actually having a binding issue or some kind of like issue like that, or you're actually having a transmission problem, you can actually clearly see it then that way. And you're using Fiddler for that. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Fiddler's a great tool, actually. And I can imagine the big thing Fiddler's going to tell you is just how big some of those transmissions are getting. Yeah, and in fact, because of that, because we saw, uh, because we were using Fiddler, we actually got a really early on view that, hey, you know what, we actually have a grid that's going to return 2,000 records, which may not seem, which which is excessive to begin with, but yeah. hey, that could actually translates into almost over a megabyte of payload coming over right. the wire. And we said, whoa, 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 let's take a step back. We can't be sending a, a mag uh, over the wire. Right. Uh, we need to come up with I'll come up with some uh, better alternatives. And I got to expect that most of it wasn't changed anyway. You're just sending back what you'd received. Yeah. And I, I got to just jump in here and mention that we did a show with Eric Lawrence on Fiddler uh, December 22nd, 2009, show number 509, if, in case any listeners want to go back and check that out. And yeah, most people equate Fiddler to working with uh, browsers, but it, it, Silverlight, it's not that different, right? right. You're, you're, in the end, it's still HTTP. HTTP traffic. Yeah, the Silverlight and Fid- Fiddler is a great tool, essential tool for working with Silverlight application. As a matter of fact, it uh, it just reminds me an interesting conversation we had. Uh, at a point in time, we are working very hard on trying to define some consistency on our around our WCF data contract and service contract. Uh, while defining it, the naming conventions, the packaging scheme for all the service exchanges, one of the things we have been paying attention to is, hey, how this payload will look in the Fiddler? Is there something we can do to improve the readability of the data that is going over the wire? We adjusted some of our naming convention, some of our packaging convention of the service contract itself to make it more readable in the Fiddler. So to that is the extent we kind of an... Uh, uh, at a very early stage, established the need for wire-level debugging, which gives a tremendous insight. And it, it gives a lot of uh, more advantages also. Without having to go through a massive use case, you mm. can capture a packet, make corrections, and test all the border conditions and edge conditions, uh, ability to reconstruct the traffic, which is very doable, because these are all just a data exchange, mm. and and homegrown tool for capturing and changing the packet and trying to replay that uh, during development, of course, and we had to protect the replay attack in production. That's a different story. Uh, and also a wire-level debugging tool like Fiddler, essential components for successfully developing large silverlet applications. Yeah, I'm just thinking about other ways I would get to the wire. My, my first thought would be Wireshark, but then you'd have to write a parser for all that streaming data. It's an interesting idea to actually make that stuff more readable because other than debugging, you want everything encrypted anyway. That's right. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, the, the protection of all that. And you've now brought up WCF. So you're, are you not using RIA services or do you, do you guys predate that stuff? Uh, we are not using RIA services. Not just because our project predates it. We have been closely working with Microsoft. Uh, we were participated in the Silverlight 3 early adapter, right. well as Silverlight 4 early adapter program. And as you may know, the RIA started the, uh, gaining shape after Silverlight 2 alongside with Silverlight 3. We had always kept a close tab on RIA services. Now, RIA services is a great platform, fantastic value. So uh, I am going to follow up with the reasons we didn't adapt so it doesn't diminish the quality and value of the RIA services. 
It's just that it is not for all. Uh, RIA services has a heavy dependency on the link. Link is another great technology. Just as we, the OR mapping never really right. worked for us. Uh, we tried a lot, but link didn't work for us enough. So we, uh, the link requires a strong and OR mapping tool, or you have to work for link to SQL. Uh, our current production application is Oracle. So now we have to look for link to Oracle provider. But right. still, at the end of the day, the SQLs that are generated by the link provider and uh, debugging the SQL in terms of performance, our inability to start adding database in, for example, to optimize the performance, there are a lot of constraints. So uh, link didn't work for us, uh, even though we tried a lot. Now, the RIA has a heavy dependency on link. So RIA minus link, there's nothing there out there. So because of that, we could not effectively put RIA into use. Uh, a short answer is we don't use RIA services, and we tried. Right. But it's a bit unfortunate because why, apart from providing server-side data constructs and client-side binding constructs, driven by link, uh, even outside that, RIA adds lots of value, even beyond that. Uh, for example, when you are trying to define a WCF data contract, you have to retype all the contracts again to make it so-called bindable on the client. Either you have to make it from, either you have to implement iNotify property change, or you have to derive those things from dependency object. These constructs have no room on the server, so we have to invest a lot of time reconstructing the data contract to make it bindable on the client. So even if you are not interested in RIA domain services, RIA data services, there are peripheral values in RIA. When you create a RIA project, it creates a server-side contract as well as a client-side contract, which is bindable. So it is. Uh, it, it would have been very nice had the RIA been, RIA been layered in a way, hey, even if I'm not interested in domain services, is there any way I can leverage your client-side contract generation capability. It would have been nice if there is a level of layering. Unfortunately, when we gave up on RIA, it is sad we had to give up on 100% of the RIA value because right. there's not enough layering in between. You know, it's interesting how much impact that ADO.net decision had here going up on the stack. Yeah. But I also get the sense that you haven't said this. So I don't want to put words in your mouth yet, Venki, but it sounds like you have a really strong team of database folks. Yes, we do. And so you, you have the, this, this talent pool that can optimize the database well, build your, a lot of great store procedures, and really ADO.net still the best way to speak to the database when it's being run that way. That is correct. It is a combination of two. Uh, it's one is the a very highly skilled team who has been developing products like this. That's our, that is their comfort zone. Right. And also the, uh, the nature of the problem. The nature of the problem is such that the, the complexity of our information relationship demands sticking to that approach. Now, we have an opportunity. Uh, close to 30 to 40 percent of the cases are very straightforward. We can use war mapping tools. We can use entity framework. We can use RIA. We have a choice. But we would rather be consistent across the spectrum, right. whether it is a simple or complex, rather than trying to cross-pollinate. Some of the scenarios are driven by RIA and some of them are not. So uh, so the 80-20 rules applies, or I would rather call it 60-40 rule in our case. 40% hmm. of the cases, uh, the generated SQL from external tool, which tries to give the OR mapping value, simply will not work at the database level. 
we have to touch the sql optimize the sql it's not just for scalability and uh, higher degree of performance even to get the basic performance we have an aspiration to deliver all the sequels in sub second uh, most of the time generated sequels will take 30 seconds 40 seconds you have to rewrite the sequel or you have to start messing up the war layer in a way tweak it hack it in a way so that you can produce the kind of sequel you are looking for that's not an optimal way to employ a technology yeah interesting problem you know one hand i'm thinking this is mostly a timing problem. You came in early and had to go with the stack that worked best, but it's it always seems to come back to the skill set that you have these people with the right set of skills. You've made it work this way. It would be foolish to diverge from that skill set. That's right. Even though ultimately it's limited your technology choices to some degree. You know, obviously you've made it work, but some would say you went down a harder path. They took longer to build, and, and, and it's trickier to care for. WCF is just not for the faint of heart. That's true. It is like uh, WCF has its own baggage of challenges. Yeah. Many of those challenges are being addressed as part of .NET 4.0, but till .NET 3.5 SP1 timeframe, there are certain foundation overhead. Uh, the plumbing code that you have to write around WCF there is something else we have to build an infrastructure code to eliminate those pain. For example, we built a lightweight proxy scheme. Uh, all of our WCF contracts follow and fundamental constructs of an IDX service of T-request and T-response. It's a generic interface. Hmm. Uh, it's a kind of soap within the soap. Now, what are the challenges around WCF that we have to eliminate? Uh, as you start building more and more WCF contracts and services, the web.config has a huge bloat. Now, if you want to make one change, you have to make it across the spectrum. So this is for the address and binding and contract. Now, in our case, the address is predictable. We use convention over configuration. Binding, in Silverlight space, it's a singular binding. We don't need the flexibility for changing the binding on a scenario by scenario. For us, these are all basic HTTP binding across the spectrum. So we don't need the config flexibility. The third piece is a contract. By abstracting the contract to a generic interface and also creating the base class structure for the server-side services and client-side proxies, we substantially eliminated the overhead around proxy generation and web.config bloat, client-side config bloat, all those aspects we eliminated. Yes, you are right, WCF is not for faint-hearted, but even there, uh, either you can embrace full-blown RIA, but if you don't embrace RIA, it's not that you lose everything. There are opportunities for establishing a basic framework code. We are not talking about a massive framework. We're talking about a few hundred lines of code on the server and client to substantially reduce the pain around asynchronous programming, to substantially reduce the pain around proxy generation, proxy bloat, web.config bloat. These things can be eliminated. WCF has enough flexibilities. See, uh, the sad part is, for some reason, 8 out of 10 developers get scared mm, with right. the WCF. And they don't, do not go beyond the hello world construct. There is so much flexibility built into WCF. It's not too hard. Partially it is an scary documentation. And also the initiative from developer to spend the extra two hours to read some basic flexibilities. Well, you, so you're mentioning plumbing code around in bloat, config bloat around WCF. Did you, um, did you ever listen to Miguel Castro talk about or show people how to roll your own WCF projects from scratch instead of using the Visual Studio templates? Uh, yeah. Is that kind of what you did? 
Yes, we did. Uh, conceptually, that's the kind of stuff what we did also. Uh, there are two aspects here. One, uh, building our own plumbing, but trying to closely align ourselves. This is not about defeating the WCF. This is about leveraging the WCF extensibility point to eliminate the overhead around config management and proxy management. Hmm. But at the same time, we have a different challenge. We didn't want to introduce our own protocol. Sure. Here's the reason. Uh, we The Silverlight is not the only client for our WCF services. There are other clients. For example, we wrote tons of unit against those WCF services. We did an entire unit testing automation of our backend, which we could never achieve in ASP.NET world. All our backend services are 100% unit testing automated. It is pretty close to test-driven development, but I will be very careful in characterizing it. It is not to the dot test-driven development. Now, NUnit is a different client of those services. Third aspect, our QA organization used Mercury tools for testing the backend, for testing automation as well as performance testing automation. Now, the Mercury tools would like to use some industry standard. So if you start introducing totally deviated plumbing, we will eliminate the NUnit clients, we will eliminate the Mercury clients for testing automation and performance testing automation. We can't do that. So Silverlight is not the only client. That's a broader spectrum of clients. So our right. approach was leveraging the WCF extensibility in a way the end resulting contract is 100% WCF compatible. So that you use a third-party tool, non-Microsoft tool, you can start creating proxies using the tool with the native facilities and start writing code against those services uh, even if it is not a .NET or Silverlight client. So we had a unique challenge, extensibility of WCF, eliminate the overhead, but at the same time, be wire-level compatible faithfully to the web services standard. Yeah, and in addition, uh, as, a, as another additional point, uh, because we've gone down this path, if we ever wanted to actually provision that data to a third party or an external uh, client of ours, uh, we can go ahead and just say, and they don't want to be, they don't have our plumbing code or they don't have any of these abstractions that we've introduced. We can go ahead and just tell them simply, go ahead and add a web service reference, and you can happily go ahead and use uh, the data that we have for that we can expose to you. Right. Anybody could build a client on that. Absolutely. So there are lot, lots of value add available in blogs, postings, videos, and discussions about how to defeat WCF. But I would put one word of caution uh, when blindly jumping into the those uh, aspects, there is still residual value in sticking to core web service standards. And uh, so that you can, you are reachable by a broader audience without having to have a specific technology spinning. It's not, it's not going to make the cut if you are going to be, hey, .NET server versus .NET client. Right. Now, there are some uh, use cases or some situation where it may be acceptable for us, being a large enterprise, having a broader audience, we had to be wire-level compatible to web service standards. So there's, a, there is, there's not enough flexibility. There is some level of restrictions in what interesting things we can do. Uh, but within those constraints, I, we believe that we did a fantastic job in establishing, leveraging smartly the WCF extensibility to eliminate. So what we have is, I won't call a proxy-less WCF client what we call as a lightweight proxy. Our proxies are not the hundreds of lines of generated proxy from Microsoft. Our proxies are literally three lines. Is that an accurate line count, Roman? Yeah, there's, there's more. Including curly brackets? Including the curly brackets. 
<laughs> Do you like that lisp joke? Yeah. <laughs> so now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of users. I mean, the main thing here is that Silverlight offloads this work and holds it a, a in utilizes the the customer's workstation. Uh, what's the connectivity hit like? Do you use uh, front end SSL processing or trying to offload some work on the web servers that have? It sounds like they largely just pass through the database anyway. Yeah. So the wire level load is contributed by two factors. One is about rendering what we used to call as an UI. What is the role of an ASP.NET anyway? Is the ASP.NET's role is for rendering UI or rendering information? When the Ajax came in, it kind of got convoluted. Now, people would like to drive the client-driven user experience. Uh, The role of the server is serving the information and satisfying the transaction. But they could not clearly achieve it because ASP.NET gives tremendous leverage in terms of markups and binding. Now, with the ASP.NET 4.0 and MVs in AJAX, client-side AJAX uh, framework, for the first time, you are going to get the true taste of client-side binding with a JavaScript template. Uh, so that is something coming part of ASP.NET 4.0. Very interesting development. But before that, developers were constantly struggling with, am I going to use a client-side binding where I have start writing tons of JavaScript code or JavaScript framework for manipulating the DOM, or should I leverage a higher productivity server-side binding? The update kernel is the uh, the best thing or worst thing Microsoft ever came back with. Uh, it has been abused to the core, but the end result is the role of ASP.NET till 3.5 became so convoluted. To come back to your question, the in the ASP.NET world, the wire-level overhead is saturated both by information as well as markup. Now, with the Silverlight, your UI is predominantly embedded in the Zap. UI has become real content. Yeah. We try to push the content as close as possible to the end user using content delivery networks. Now, what is left behind is the information exchange. Now, we optimize the information exchange, payload, slice it. So effectively, uh, we have a calculation in our mind. It is a pure paper calculation. But four weeks from now, we will acid test our theory. We believe that the wire level overhead will come down to more than less to less than 50% of our current production system. This is purely based around the back on the napkin calculation. Pretty soon, we will get into the performance testing when we watch the network traffic, uh, comparable scenario exercising our current in-production ASP.NET powered system with still lots of AJAX compared to the silver light we will know precisely whether the wire-level overhead is going up or coming down. We have enough reasons to believe that the wire-level overhead will substantially come down, excluding the initial ZAP download overhead, which is a different case. We are pushing it close to the end user using CDN. Right. That's that's what I was going to ask. Is the only thing that could be at the CDN are the ZAPs, right? That is right. And are you still sticking with the one big ZAP? What did you say, 300 pages in that ZAP? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, again, to, to refer back to the, speed, the, the talk we had at Mix, but uh, yeah, actually what we did was we realized that that's not going to fly because the download size is going to be uh, way too large. Uh, right. And obviously we're going to have working set problems. In addition to that, we would have uh, problems uh, with actually being able to recycle uh, uh, recycle to Zap at some point since once it's loaded up, that's it. So as types come in, 
uh, things will get a load. Uh, things will get keep getting uh, loaded up, and more and more memory will get utilized. Right. So even if you start employing things like assembly caching, or if you employ you know Prism's ideas on demand of on demand, or now even MEF's uh, ideas about on demand loading, you still don't have an opportunity to recycle and free up some space. So uh, what we did is we actually broke up the application into multiple apps. So for every, you know, uh, we broke, we, we, first we went back, back and figured out the logistical breakdown, uh, the logical breakdown of the application based on, you know, uh, components like working set modules of the application. And in its entirety, that became, uh, one big application. So, uh, for us, and that, when we say serverlet application, that's actually one module of the entire application. So when we, when we talk internally, we say, yeah, we have, uh, you know, 20, uh, serverlet modules that mix up the HQ application, but in fact, they're basically 20 serverlet applications. Uh, so what we've done is, uh, obviously, if you just use the out-of-box bo- out uh, uh, tooling, you'll have 20 HTMLs or 30 HTMLs or however many HTMLs you're going to need. So we actually got rid of all of those and introduced the handler that just uh, takes that and generates the HTML that uh, for your individual projects. So what we, we are able to do is we actually, as more and more pages come on board, or as new and new modules come on board, we don't actually have to impact existing modules. Or if we have to, we can just add those uh, small small pieces into individual modules. So we actually spread the load across. Yeah, you don't have a uh, an update bomb where you roll out the one big master file and everybody has to download it. Yeah, there's no such thing. We don't have that. We don't have that uh, concern. So in fact, you, we can actually just update update one particular module and not impact anybody, anybody else. Everybody else can keep just keep on running. Right, just the folks using that module. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, even if we wanted to update the Silverlight uh, runtime version, which something seems so simple, but if you have a hundred uh, applications you have to maintain, that's so simple. Even something, yeah. something as uh, mundane and simple as that, we actually went and centralized it in one spot. So we we can change it. We and actually we did that for I think there was a GR three. We did that for updating the Silverlight version uh, across the board in one shot. So everybody got an update request uh, for updating Silverlight. Okay. And we did that in multiple places. So we so we don't have one big zap. We we have a lot of zaps, and we're le- leveraging assembly caching. And what size do you feel is right for a zap? And how oh, many have you got? That's now? a good one. <laughs> well, the smaller the better. Uh, obviously, uh, where our, what we did was we said, how big is actually our homepage to render up? Uh, it's actually you know a nice, colorful kind of a homepage. So we decided to just take a look and see. Uh, we went to our homepage, ctadvantage.com, and took a look at what what is that size, because that's been in there. That's the thing that people hit the most, and that actually surprisingly came back to about uh, a little over 500 kilobytes. So we said, okay, let's try to see if we can strive for 500 kilobytes. So right. that was the number that we've been striving for, uh, and we're attempting our best to achieve. So to uh, clarify it, uh, probably you can just edit it at a later stage. So how do you arrive at what is an acceptable zap size for your target end user? Instead of trying to come out with a number out of blue, what we did was uh, we cleared our browser cache and we hit our current ASP.NET homepage. Now, our ASP.NET homepage, when you hit it for the first time, is saturated with GIFs, images, JavaScripts, and markups. So even though they are all multiple individual streams, goes to the browser and get cached, there is an initial payload that is going down the wire for the users coming in for the first time. We summed up all the over wire level overhead. It came close to 550k. So it kind of gave us a hint. You know what? It is okay to have our initial zap up to half an MB. 
So that's a kind of an uh, reasoning we came out with. What is why and half an MB of ZAP is an acceptable size. So from there, we have a horizontally scalable packaging model. So even though 350 pages, they are not into one big ZAP. So we try to keep all of our ZAPs under half MB. And initially, we were comfortable with a Silverlight plugin up to 4 MB, which was a very comfortable threshold for us. For with our in each module from our cases and approximately half an MB to 0.75, k That's a kind of range. Uh, now the Silverlight core runtime is going to edge towards 6 MB, which is fine. But we have not revised our number. We'd like to stick to 500 to 700 k as a ZAP size, which seems to be very reasonable and acceptable. And keep in mind, these ZAPs once are downloaded stays with the browser till such time you make an update. Well, guys, I, th I think we're we're close to done here. Have we missed any key points? Um, one uh, observation we will have on the RIA surface is uh, the RIA, there's a, uh, there is one fundamental indigestion that is happening across the Microsoft uh, uh, offerings. The link seems to be playing a very critical role. We have OData right. protocol. Now we have an OData client. It is linked. We have RIA. RIA is linked. Fine, Link is a great technology, but there seems to be a general overemphasis of Link. We love Link, no doubt about it. We use Link, but Link is not necessarily the only way to look at the whole world. Uh, where exactly we see certain challenges emerging. Now, uh, the, the dynamic language runtime clearly is going to, mm. we believe, is going to play a very critical role in coming days. Uh, the DLR can be perceived in two different ways. The DLR can be for a .NET calling a Python or .NET calling a JavaScript. That's one way of looking at it. But we see it a little bit differently. There are lots of advantages in .NET calling .NET using dynamic language model. Here's one good context. When we started the whole project embracing Silverlight, we wanted to be in a perfect world. Everything is strongly typed. Everything is strongly typed. And if you compile, you know everything about it. So, which is uh, after we finished the project, now we are we have delivered the solution to the QA. Our current realization is uh, a strong type is a premium to have. Uh, it's not that when you fix issues at the compile time, everything will start working. You have to go through the necessary testing. So, you don't lose substantially value by embracing some level of dynamism. By employing things like DLR in our data contract, we could have avoided so much of plumbing boilerplate code we have been typing all along. We see that by employing DLR strategically, we can compress our code line close to 20%. So we realize that DL, dynamic languages has a critical role to play in a front end. Now coming back to the link, what happens when you inject DLR on link? Can you bind to a dynamic object using XAML binding? How do you link against a dynamic object? Link demands a static, statically typed target. So it becomes a very interesting challenge. Now, uh, so that is one observation we have. We are not very excited with seeing the whole world from the link's perspective. Uh, one classical uh, example is RIA. RIA minus link, you lose substantial value. You lose almost all value. So it's time, maybe, it's time uh, there has to be some level of layering in future offerings from Microsoft. And Link can be one of the peripheral layers to come into the system, but Link cannot be the only driving mechanism beneath the scene. So in general, we are very uncomfortable with most of the product group in Microsoft taking Link 
as a way of entry into the whole system. Okay. Well, guys, um, is the website we're talking about the uh, the CT website? Uh, the website is uh, www.hq.com. But if you hit the hq.com today, what you will be seeing in production is our ASP.NET version. Our Silverlight version has been handed over to QA department. The testing has already started. And uh, right now, we cannot tell the go-live date. It is business confidential. It is pretty soon. Uh, the Silverlight version is not in production yet. So it's H-E-D-G-E and then the letter Q.com, HedgeQ. H-C-U-E. Oh, C-U-E. Yeah, hcue Okay. Well, thanks, guys. It's been a it's been a great talk, and congratulations on making such a great uh, uh, a great. Well, you'd call it like a a flagship sample application in the real world for large scaling Silverlight apps. Hey, we gained a lot from the community. Thanks for giving us an opportunity to share our observation with the community. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a